0: Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. the The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Hello, this is Michael Dowd, host of Post Doom, Regenerative Conversations Exploring Overshoot Grief, Grounding, and Gratitude. In this conversation, recorded in September of 2019, I speak with my dear friend and colleague for three decades, Bill Kauth. Bill's the founder of the mankind project the new warrior training uh connie and i have stayed with him and his wife zoe several times in ashland oregon we titled this conversation the world will be okay there are two previews preview one
1: because i've been at this for 20 years uh and you know studying the you know the the more desperate edge of it i've I've, oh boy, it almost hurts to say, it, but I've really come to accept the uh, the inevitability of just just about everything, yeah, and then learning how to live within that um, is challenging and and I find it really hard to talk about, which is why i'm so glad you're doing this conversation Preview two i want to tell i want to tell one story that happened to me a little over a year ago that was so poignant um But here's what happened is at the end of the first day of all this teaching, they did an experiment. It was, we'd been together for like eight hours and the experiment was you go inside and find some belief that you hold something that you hold that you don't want. And what what they were looking for was kind of personal interpsychic stuff like, you know, I'm not worthy or, you know, and I I, I couldn't find one of those, but the thing that came up for me, so the belief that I hold is the world will not be okay. So, and I, uh, because I knew they were going to change it. So what they did, they said, okay, now, why don't you write down, just write the opposite. So the opposite for me was the world will be okay. So then they had the group, it was a couple hundred of us, one, you know, this side of the room was to be passive, just close your eyes and the others are going to hug you and speak their new belief into your ear. So, you know, a, a dozen or 15 people came and hugged me and said their belief, then it was time to turn, it was my turn. So I went to the first person, I said, the world will be okay. And to the next one, I said, the world will be okay. And, and as I said a few more times, I was starting to get into it at mm. a kind of a visceral level. And I hugged the next one. I said, the world will be okay. And her eyes popped open and she looked at me and said, thank you. And I was taken back and I went to another one. And I said oh, that same energy that the world will be okay. And her eyes popped open and looked at me and said, thank you. And it happened several times. And then people started, I kept doing it. And then people started bursting into tears. Bursting into tears at the thought the world will be okay, spoken in a visually authentic way. Yes. We gotta talk about it. We gotta we gotta get it out there.
0: The conversation begins. Hello, Bill.
1: Hi, Michael. Good to see you well,
0: again. Good to see you too again, brother. <laughs> so the first thing I wanna uh just invite you to share before we get into language and story and all that is just for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, um, just help us get you, uh, give a sense of, of, you know, who you've been in the world, what you bring and uh, what you're particularly passionate about or interested in these days. Okay.
1: I'm going to be kind of brief. Um, in 1984, I was a feminist therapist because that was the potent energy of change that was going on during that time. And I had been in a men's group, which I just loved a few years before that. And at some point, um, as I more immersed myself with uh, the feminists during that time, I saw how connected they were. And it just, uh, like a call came over me to do something for men. And once that call came in, I was obsessed. I just uh, had to do something. So I contacted my friend Ron Herring with a PhD in curriculum at the university level. And another guy uh, who was a General Motors guy who had been in the Marine Corps for 10 years, but I had been in groups where I saw his heart so clearly mm-hmm. that I invited these two men, and the three of us um, in the middle, late 84, cobbled together this training, and, and each of us had a certain genius. So because the three of us were so highly aligned with with no hierarchy, this thing just flowed through us, and we launched it in January of 85, and now we're, we're 35 years, we're almost 35 years out, and we've gone around the world, there's 80,000 men, because what the training does is it pops men's hearts open just and in such a safe way because the container is safe. And and I know you've done the training.
0: Yeah, well, I've found the new warrior training um, to be one of the most significant um, weekend experiences of my entire life because it brings together so much in terms of psychology and and, uh, heart energy and an understanding of human nature and an understanding of what has led to healthy cultures in the past. And uh, the hugest piece of it, one of perhaps the most important piece because of the role of testosterone in the human animal's body is, uh, that the, uh, the men become men by being, um, mentored, uh, often through an ordeal, but there's a, there's a rite of passage experience and the, uh, uh, the Mankind Project, the New Warrior uh, training, has has done that more effectively than anything I've personally experienced. I know there's other modalities, other things, but my son, when my son Shane, who's um, uh, uh, let's see, I'm 60 now and he's 34, when he did it, he also found it to be hugely significant in his life.
1: Beautiful. Yeah, I've been I've been deeply immersed. A uh, new novel's come out uh, by a friend of mine on the sacred feminine, and it has moved me to tears. Um Again, you know, uh when Zoe and I used to do our workshops, I'd apologize to women very directly, very live for five thousand years of abuse, and I would always go to tears. There's something just archetypally that moves in me. It's it's horrible what we've done uh, as men. So the the healing of men is profound. I I, I love that I've used my life to do that yeah one other detail just um at about 10 years in i was a founder and they kept saying that you know it it took a little while to, to really launch but when Bly's book hit in 1990 it sold a million copies and we were already in place so our work just expanded men were suddenly hungry to find something you know a safe place where they could express their essence their emotional authenticity and stuff and at about 10 years in um They asked me what I wanted as a founder, and I said, uh, I want a seat at the Council, I want 1% of my creation, and I want the title, Visionary at Large, because it sounded so cool. And uh, (laughs) once I got it, once they granted that to me, I started taking it really seriously, and I started looking ahead like a visionary would, finding out what's going on in the world, and then bring the word back to my people. And so at the annual meeting, I'd come in and say, you know, I just discovered peak oil. This was maybe 20 years ago peak well you guys oh my god we are probably going to be hurting in a while and the next year i come back and say remember how bad i said it was last year it's worse so <laughs> eventually i put on the road with the uh, sacred lifeboats tour and honestly you know you, people just weren't interested back then i couldn't you know i couldn't get a listening and um, so i discovered that what they really wanted was was community so i, I took on the task of building community and that's that's what we're to now.
0: Well, say a little bit about what you and Zara are doing with regards to that.
1: Yeah, we've developed a model. There was no model for how men and women can get together and bond and connect and actually be committed to each other like it used to be in the small towns. It's like the memory of that has pretty much been wiped out. Yeah. But we, we wanted it. We wanted that feeling like when you go to a seminar and you just kind of fall in love with everybody and then you say goodbye and you never see them again. We wanted that consistently. So we actually built a tribe here, about 20 people. Um, we call it a tribe, it's kind of like a clan of, uh, you know, subset of tribe, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, um, we do that. We get together and we kind of go to heaven with each other. We fall in love yet again on a, on a regular, like weekly basis. And we've developed a very precise model that we're, uh, actually, we're just developing an e-course right now to take it out uh, to far, far broader than our face-to-face seminars.
0: Mm. That's great. Well, Bill, about this sort of term post-doom, just before we started recording this. I started to tell you a story that uh, realized I hadn't told uh, maybe once uh, or mm-hmm. twice at the most, but it's a fun story how this came to us. Connie and I had been speaking in Eastern Canada uh, and we did a whole bunch of programs, including a week long um, retreat for clergy on sort of ecology as the heart of theology, that sort of thing. And um, Connie was talking to a journalist who had just finished, Zach St. George, who just finishing up a book for Norton mm-hmm. Uh, press on on assisted migration, assisting trees and migrating north, which is one of Connie's big passions. And at the end of the email, the very end of the email, she said, yeah, we just finished doing this retreat for clergy. And, you know, we gave them a lot of doom, but there's only so much doom you can give ministers because they have to go into their congregations and, you know, preach and teach and whatever. So she said pretty quickly, we got to a post-doom place. And, you know, post-doom has a gorgeous sunrise, <laughs> period. End of email. And, I, and she read this aloud to me. I was like, post doom as a gorgeous sunrise. I like that. That was the, that was the genesis of this, uh, of this idea.
1: Beautiful. The post doom conversation works. Great.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious what yeah. language? well, first of all, what comes to your mind when you hear post doom and then uh, perhaps separate from that, how do you speak of a contracting or collapsing time? How do you speak of these times?
1: I don't speak about it much because there's just still not much of a listening. And, you know, because I've been at this for 20 years uh, and, you know, studying the, the, you know, the, the more desperate edge of it, I've, I've, oh boy, I almost hurts to say, but I've really come to accept the, uh, the inevitability of just, just about everything. Yeah. Um, and then learning how to live within that, that um, is challenging. And, and I find it really hard to talk about which is why I'm so glad you're doing this conversation. Um, I wanna tell I want to tell one story that happened to me a little over a year ago that was so poignant. Um, but here's what happened is at the end of the first day of all this teaching, they did an experiment. It was, it, we'd been together for like eight hours and the experiment was you go inside and find some belief that you hold, something that you hold that you don't want. And what, what they were looking for was kind of personal, interpsychic stuff like, you know, I'm not worthy or, you know, and I, I, I couldn't find one of those, but the thing that came up for me, so the, the belief that I hold is the world will not be okay. So, and I, uh, cause I knew they were gonna change it. So what they did, they said, okay, now why want you you write down, just write the opposite. So the opposite for me was the world will be okay. So then they had the group it was a couple hundred of us, one, you know, this side of the room was to be passive, just close your eyes and the others are gonna hug you and speak their new belief into your ear. So, you know, a a dozen or 15 people came and hugged me and said their belief. Then it was time to turn. It was my turn. So I went to the first person. I said, the world will be okay. And to the next one, I said, the world will be okay. And and as I said a few more times, I was starting to get into it Mm -hmm. at a kind of a visceral level. And I hugged the next one. I said, the world will be okay. And her eyes popped open. She looked at me and said, thank you. And I was taken back and I went to another one and I said with that same energy, that the world will be okay. Their eyes popped open and looked at me and said, thank you. And it happened several times. And then people started, I kept doing it. And then people started bursting into tears. Wow. Bursting into tears at the thought, the world will be okay. Spoken in a visually authentic way. Yes. And I just, I, I could barely stand it at that point because there was something, I had tapped into something so, so deep that uh, by the time, you know, you know, half an hour later, by the time we were out in the car, I just sat and wept while Zoe held, held me, you know. It's like this secret lives in people at a level that is so painful and so secret. So that's part of why I so appreciate, you know, your work in the world, Michael, and, and doing this post-doom conversation. We gotta talk about it. We gotta, we gotta get it out there.
0: Well, you know, I can't think of a more apt tagline or motto or whatever then for post doom then the world will be okay (laughs) so thanks brother i appreciate it i'm sure connie will title this conversation we'll be okay jeez Yeah, well, okay, so you didn't always have that. And in fact, um, it took a long time. So there's two questions. One, I want you to just share a little bit about the challenges of being so far ahead of so many people and the frustration of trying to talk about this stuff for the last 20 years or longer. Um, But then also, you know, sort of wrapped into that, your story. I mean, you know, those of us that were born in the 20th century, mid 20th century, uh, uh, early to mid 20th century, we grew up with certain expectations, certain assumptions about the future. Um, And at some point, either gradually or suddenly, those shifted. And there's often a lot of emotion that has come with that. So share, take as long as you want. But this is really the the heart of this particular podcast series or conversation series is your journey, your story of going from however it was you grow up to wherever you are now. And, and especially some of the key points along the way.
1: Mm-hmm. Boy, I'm just an astonishingly ordinary guy. I grew up in a little town in the Midwest and, um uh, <clears throat> something, you know, the m- miracles happened. Um, and I, you know, managed to get into graduate school and, um, <clears throat> And into men's work, and then you know I've already shared that story of how how that happened.
0: But 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 when you began doing that in the in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I mean even early early 90s, there wasn't really that much awareness of climate. I mean Bill McKibben's book uh, wasn't written until the end of the 80s, um, and there wasn't really the, it. It was there weren't a lot of people who were thinking in terms of. Yeah the end of the world as we know it. There wasn't a lot of people that were thinking of climate and ecological catastrophe or whatever.
1: Yeah, thanks for reminding me. There's a, there's a piece that goes back really, really early. It goes back 30 some, 35, uh, 37, 38 years ago. Um, I, there was a friend of mine in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who she was tapped into stuff. She was with the uh, Association for Psychology. And she came to me as a friend and she said, Bill, I have just heard something from an Australian physician named Helen Caldicott Mm -hmm. about the medical consequences of nuclear war. And I'm really concerned. And we're going to have this this conference. um, And I think there's going to be a video of her. And so I went and at her suggestion, because I knew she cared, I stood at the back of the room. And when the video was going on, I had my arms full like, okay, show me. So Helen Caldicott started talking about medical consequences of nuclear war and next thing i know the tears are streaming down my face and it just it struck me it was like there 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 was a bit of a call in that and then um oh god Uh, 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 kind of one of the young feminist writers um and i'm just i can't think of her name right now but she wrote an article in which basically said you know, uh, the world is in some significant danger, and it's really men's fault. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I did not go in to defend, maybe Mm -hmm. because I had been in men's group. (laughs) Right. And uh, and so uh, it was like, there's something in me getting activated around working with men. So when I was at this feminist uh, conference I was alluding to, and the call came in, you know, you know, I have to do something for men us. Uh, those are the, the, the it, I already knew the world was in danger at that point. And I knew largely it was men, you know, from the patriarchy. I've talked about that the 5,000 years that were, you know, putting us in that danger. So to empower men was my intention. So it was from those keys that I started doing the men's work. And I didn't really learn about um, climate change till some years later. And that, you know, as a visionary, I started studying that stuff in the early peak oil and taking it on the road and finding the astonishing lack of uh, people really wanting to hear it. You know, there's another flip to that, just like the story I told about those people I was hugging. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I honestly think that people know this stuff and have known it for a really long time. And it's just, we haven't had the courage to talk about it or really out it, you know, and that's why, you know, like John Michael and you and some of the other, um, pioneers in actually talking about this has, has been important. Yeah, Carolyn Baker and, and that, that whole bunch.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've got a theory about that. I think it's largely as a result of the fact that at some deep level, they know it, but at some deep level, they also know that we are embedded in patriarchal industrial rapacious human centered capitalistic systems. <laughs> that are that, are not going to, that we, we're not gonna be able to change or certainly not be able to make, uh, make any significant change to avert the catastrophe coming. So if you know something, but you also know at some deep level, there's not a damn thing you can do about it, then the psychic pressure to deny, or at least to deny the worst of it is going to be almost inevitable, almost compelling. Most people are not going to be able to move through denial um and that's I think the biggest part of it is that we also know that there's no way to turn this around in any you know we're not gonna go from radically unsustainable to sustainable in a generation or two or without some serious collapse first.
1: Um, one of the guys on your on your list, Dave, who lives up in uh, up, up in the Canadian Islands area.
0: Oh, Dave Pollard.
1: Dave Pollard, oh my god. Yes, What's yes, his name? I love his stuff. I've been following his stuff for so long. And he used to be a like a corporate guy. And so he knows that the systems from within. And he says so clearly says large complex systems simply don't change. They can't change. They must collapse. Yes. So, so knowing that I have that thing that you just talked about also like um, (laughs) There's no other, there's nothing else that can happen we're, We're we're in that track.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I interviewed Dave as part of this series, and um, he's awesome. I mean, I, I first encountered his work just maybe three years ago, um, yeah. and it featured some of his writings uh, in some sermons that I've done. Oh, good. I just found it so valuable. Yeah. Well, so anything else? I mean, I want you to flesh out a little bit more your story of how you came to an understanding of overshoot, of collapse, of resource depletion, all the all these challenges. Um, anything more that that you want to share about how it 's been for you processing that and and the ch- the frustrations of the challenges in in finding so little receptivity on the part of others in sharing this and how did you deal with that
1: yes that 's a good way good um, i've come i 've come through this for so long you know it 's been literally decades of kind of you know kind of finding it and then uh, you know guy Mcpherson comes through and he's he 's this screaming in the wilderness. I drove all the way to Shasta just to meet this guy to see if he was credible and Unfortunately, he is credible (laughs) as a guy (laughs) saying stuff And uh, and and so I held that for a while And then uh within the last two years now, you know this michael There's even been spiritual teachers that have been coming out and saying the same thing So there's uh, you know, it's it's gone from a whisper to almost a scream at this point and um so uh it's, it's validating something that I, I've known and I've gone through my own grief process, you know, my own, um, uh, we, you know, you know, what really rips me up of course is, you know, I'm a, getting to be a pretty old guy. I, you know, I've lived an awfully full life, but I look at the kids, you know, I look yeah. at the babies and it just breaks my heart, you know, yes, because, you know, just because, you know, you know what they're going to go through and, um uh, and I feel powerless. I feel helpless. So there's a lot of grief in that for me. Yes feel pretty consistently
0: yeah I mean it's it's hard to have a heart of compassion and not feel grief and at times anger um, and and despair I mean this is this is one of the reasons why for me personally this conversation series talking with folks like yourself who have often been studying this stuff, learning it, trying to share it, often frustrating at the response for a long, long time. And, and yet things that limits to growth predicted in 1972, things that Catton knew well in 1980 when he published Overshoot. Um, Joanna Macy knew this stuff decades ago. I mean, there's so many people who have held an open heart and try to awaken others. And, and many of us have shifted from where we genuinely at some point in time in the past, genuinely did believe that we could shift the systems in time. And now the recognition that that's not the case, there's a whole different wave of, of coming to be with that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, you know, um, Charles Eisenstein is coming to mind. I just, just saw a little flash. He's going to actually do a little interview with us for our tribe work. And his uh, his new book on climate is is typical of his work he, he so will not abide by us finding an enemy or hate because that's just yeah. stepping back into the old paradigm that thats caused what, we're, we've, what we've got right now and he recently writ, wrote a beautiful piece on um, the Amazon that touched a lot of hearts about you know it's so easy to blame the you know the, the politicians or whoever starting the fires so um, I, I kind of see that as the as the leading edge of um, of a kind of a, a spiritual hopefulness. You know, there there, there really is. Um, if if I were to you know really stretch and go for some hope, <laughs> it's uh, the the exponential awakening thesis. And there's some lovely spiritual uh, folks talking about that in a good way, and you know, grounded in Rupert Sheldrake's uh, you know. Uh, Re- resonant fields morphogenetic fields right uh it there's something there <laughs> if i was to stretch and find something yeah
0: i i i i was there one time i'm no yeah. longer there partly because i've become convinced through my study of toynbee and spengler and vico and uh-huh. uh the, the people who study civilizations side yeah. by side by side by side yeah. and look at the common patterns uh-huh and one of the most one of the most um expected that you you, that you can absolutely count on in declining civilizations is a growing number of people who believe with all their might that if we we all just (laughs) believe this way hold this view a transformation in consciousness Uh, and uh it's never happened yet and yet it's so predictable that people will believe that
1: well I just, I've been reading Meg Wheatley's new book, you know, and and she's got the whole first section is on, uh, you know, the study of uh, a dozen different empires that all collapsed along precisely the same six levels, you know, same six steps, all of them. And we, the American empire is in the six steps. So obviously, so overtly right now.
0: Yes anybody watching or listening to this conversation that that bill and i are having i highly recommend uh a little 75 page book by william ophels called immoderate greatness why civilizations fail he (laughs) sums up an entire library of research a mountain of research on the collapse of previous civilizations in six little chapters uh, in this amazing book, Immoderate Greatness, Why Civilizations Fail. And he also quotes at length um, Sir John Glove, Glove Pasha, in his, his 1975 or 1976 monograph, Uh, And then just Luke Kemp in the BBC just last February came out with this amazing feature article in the BBC um, uh, uh, titled, um, Are We on the Road to Civilizational Collapse? And he actually takes a look at 88 civilizations and he charts them. He has a chart that shows all 88 civilizations, how long they lasted. And this was just between... 4,000 BCE and 1,000 of the Common Era. So, f- a 5,000 year period. He doesn't look beyond 4,000 BC and he doesn't look at the last thousand years. So, the number is actually over 100. And he also uh, basically pulls out some of the most common patterns. So, it's amazing to see just in recent times um, all this uh, coming together of what we know. And yeah, the, the, the challenging part is when you really get it, then you realize, oh, the political insanity of the last, you know, yeah, several yeah. years, right on schedule. Right on schedule. The economics, uh-huh. the economic insanity unraveling, right on schedule. And that's why I love John Michael Greer's book, Dark Age uh-huh. America, so uh-huh. profoundly.
1: That's right. You read the whole thing,
0: remember? I read the, I uh-huh. I, I read the galley. He sent yeah. the galley uh, uh-huh. to me, and I was so uh-huh. impressed with the book that I called up New Society publisher, uh, publishers, I called up yeah. John Michael Greer, and I said, hey, listen, this book is way too important to not be available in audio. want to i don't want any money pro bono put me in a studio let me record this and i did and uh and of course what he does is he applies everything that we've learned over hundreds of years of research why civilizations contract and fall and then applies that to north america in the next 500 years you know if (laughs) abrupt climate change doesn't do us in in the next 50 years Here's what we can expect in North America in the next 500 years, based on previous collapsing civilizations. And the book is genius; I just love it.
1: And I had found it autonomously. That was one of those intimacies that we shared. We we find these things, and then you and I share this stuff. Hey, so I'm going to do the interview now for a while. Um, so I've got another thesis, another hopeful thesis that uh, I've Great. been playing with. You know, they're they're getting a little thin. It's hard to find them. But, uh, <laughs> I just love the fact that the crop circles have been talking to us for the last 30 or 40 years and getting incrementally more complex in what they're communicating to us. And the the UFO stuff is still just hanging out there. It seems credible if you read the certain, certain folks. And the story that the UFOs were hanging out over the nuclear silos and shutting them down tells me, if I were to get really, really hopeful, that they won't let something really horrible happen to us because uh we're part of their or they seeded us okay talk to me
0: <laughs> uh i have no idea how to deal with any of that because a i i've not been exposed to what i would consider really credible stuff around ufos or around uh crop circles but hey I am such a bow of respect <laughs> whatever the hell gives somebody a sense of hope or inspiration that, go for it, brother.
1: <laughs> it's a long shot, but I kind of like if it. That,
0: if that works <laughs> for you, go for it. <laughs> okay, I thought it could oh, Well, okay, so I know another mentor that you and I uh, share in common um, uh, is Joanna Macy, and she constantly comes back to not only the importance of grief work, Uh, despair and empowerment was her first her first book related to that but also in terms of the big picture and how reminding ourselves of the big picture can help us really look at the intensely scary uh terrifying and depressing and uh, you know of stuff but ultimately come to the place of the world will be okay So how has her work and Thomas Berry's work, how has the Epic of Evolution, Brian Swim, others who, who, who show this big picture perspective, how, if at all, has that informed you or, or helped you in this journey?
1: I, I, I don't really have an answer for that. I, I appreciate the bigger picture and I'm able to live in it and sometimes live from it. And, uh, so, and I'm still living in this uh,
0: sense of, catastrophe
1: and uh, making making do with it as best as I can
0: yeah the main way it does for me is I paint out a hundred year timeline and on a on a cosmic century timeline if the whole universe is a hundred years of course homo habilis was a week ago homo sapiens the last the last day and and uh, and even if we last another two or three million years before a super volcano or, a, a, you know, asteroid or something uh-huh. takes us out, you know, that's that's only, uh, you know, a week or two. And so on the cosmic time frame, species come and go. And so that allows me to relax into life's time, life's nature. Um, and and that's one of the things that helps me trust that everything will be OK, that the world will be OK, uh-huh. is because we will go extinct. No question, no mammal our size lasts for more than 10 or 12 million years at most. Usually it's half that or less. Wow. And knowing that allows me to trust that bigger picture. So that's where I find some help.
1: Yeah, that's good. You know, I, I was watching an Adi piece in which he was talking about the deep importance of being able to hold the extinction possibility. Because if you don't hold that, then you shut down, and you've got this, uh, yeah. you know, the, the edges again, which is where suffering comes from. So. Uh, Anyway, so bless you again for bringing this, this, this forward as an authentic possibility that we wrestle with.
0: Well, thank you, thank you. And I'm really standing on the shoulder of others who have been doing this kind of work. I mean, the, the people who really inspired this, first and foremost, were uh, Jem Bendel and his Deep Adaptation paper, and all so much stuff that's come after that. Um, and then Catherine Ingram and her Facing yeah. Extinction paper, that was awesome. Um, and then Dar Jamel and Barbara Cecil and their incredible truth outposts. And so those four people um, were really the, the the inspiration because they provided such a way of holding even the the you know the inevitability of human extinction but even the possibility that that could be in the not too distant future but then it has if we rob it of of its power by being at peace with it and then we can do the work that we can make where we can make whatever difference at whatever scale without being in freak out mo- mode or or denial mode or anger mode or whatever
1: so. yeah i think jim bendel uh, catalyzed uh, uh extinction rebellion which is, is- apparently is growing dramatically i went to the you know, their website and looked at all the sites around the planet where it's uh where it's getting getting juice
0: very much so and in fact um uh i just interviewed just maybe two weeks ago and connie just uploaded it i think yesterday uh uh my conversation with rupert reed who's massively involved in um he he's a he's a he's up there with with uh, Catherine Ingram and Jem Bendell and Barbara Dar in terms of both stature and in terms of his his whole approach is you know this civilization is finished and uh, the conversation itself is so organized and so inspiring and he's yeah he's massively involved in extinction rebellion well so let me ask a question related to time but looking in the back looking in the back looking past uh, many of us have had to restory the past as well as the future in coming to terms with all this. And I'm curious do you have any if-onlys? Like, if only humanity had done this by this time, or if we only had not taken this path by this time? or maybe it even goes deeper than humanity. So are there any if onlys for you, or is there a sense of inevitability that any species like, you know, that had tool making use would have gone this path?
1: I, I've been uh, studying Matt Kahn's work for the last six years. You know, every Sunday we get together and listen to one of his tapes. Last Sunday, the whole thing was on blame and how how utterly useless and silly yeah. blame is and how it, it takes us into where we don't want to be. It's you know, the essence of suffering. And I've, I've kind of lived there for a long time, so I've got an infinite number of if-onlys, but they're just kind of <laughs> academically interesting.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I haven't
1: emotionally engaged in them
0: anymore. Believe me, I can share that sentiment. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it is interesting. One person actually can make, can at times, in human history, especially if the, if the timing's right, can make an enormous difference, and so, yeah.
1: You know, in the deep metaphysics, um, it couldn't be another way you know that it's yeah. so uh, I, I think i've come to live there
0: yeah yeah harvey Jackin, i think uh the the ah. the, the founder of co-counseling yeah. uh reevaluation counselor uh i forget who it was i was having a conversation with somebody in this series recently who mentioned that with respect to the past it's just useful to assume that it was determined it couldn't have been otherwise so and with respect to the future it's useful to to uh, assume that our choices can make can make a difference, you know? I like that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I can go either way now. <laughs> I, honestly, I've been playing with the, you know, the determination in both directions lately. So.
0: Oh God. See, I don't know. I don't even know what to do with that. It's kind of, again, it's one of these things that are fascinating to contemplate. And from a metaphysical perspective, it's like, well, <laughs> that's cool. But, uh, you know,
1: it's like no matter what we do, it's going to happen the way it's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Okay, so related to impermanence and death, for many of us having an understanding of death as inevitable, as as sacred, as no less sacred than life, uh, I remember John Michael Greer said one thing, I, I love the fact that you have history with him in Ashland as well, but he said that death is not the opposite of life. Death is an integral part of life. The opposite of life is space. And I thought, wow, the opposite of life is space. I mean, you can't get more sterile and unalive than space. So I thought that was fascinating. But anyway, so how do you hold impermanence and death in a way that, that uh, nourishes you in these challenging times?
1: I, I kind of think I've made peace with death a while back. And, uh, <clears throat> and doing it in a good way um, just still feels like a challenge. It's part of why I've got a lot of energy uh, around tribe, um, like birth and marriage and all those things that call for ceremony of, uh, of blessing and completion. It sure seems like doing death in a good way requires a tribe, it requires a group of people that you know, really care about you, got your back and gonna take care of you all the way. So that's... that's
0: that's my sense. Of I'm so grateful. Nobody else has voiced anything like that yet. And that is so right on in my own experience. I mean, that's my sense of why indigenous cultures that were able to live sustainably in a way that didn't defile and destroy everything they depended upon is that they had an intimate community, not just with themselves but with their descendants and their ancestors. There was that sense of of cherishing. I mean, it's called ancestor worship by s- rather stupid Western anthropologists. It's not ancestor worship. It's honoring the yeah. voices, the wisdom of the past and having a personal relationship to them in your imagination, in your heart and in your conversation. So and, and in the same way, it's having an imaginary conversation in a real personal, intimate way with your descendants. Without doing that, we're not likely to live in a way that genuinely is sustainable. We're, gonna, we're going to allow the present to um, defile and, 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 and toxify the future. We're unaccountable to the future. I've come to see, or my interpretation of the difference between sustainable and unsustainable, is sustainability is accountability to the future and the past. And unsustainable is being unaccountable. To the future and the past.
1: You know, in my in my local elders lodge, we uh, we always welcome the ancestors. We always bring them in to, to be with us and honor them, and then release them at the end. And there's there's something about the getting older. And then the elders uh, in my in my elders lodge, we we uh, we talk a lot about death as one of the things we, we, we allow it to be part of it. And uh, it, it seems as I, as I'm getting older, I'm I'm honestly feeling far less um, afraid of death. It was uh, like part of the journey.
0: Yes. Well, you know, Connie used to do, uh, both of us used to do programs on death, sort of a sacred approach to death uh, Mm. that's grounded in science for many, many years. And um, I remember her telling this story of of, uh, when she was in a class of grade school kids. And just by languaging it, it made a difference. She said, how many of you have already had a grandparent who's become an ancestor? now notice that way, not how many of you have had a grandparent that died. How many of you have had a grandparent that's already become an ancestor and kids excitedly, my grandma became an ancestor last year. There's that sense of that. You become something, you become a revered ancestor. I love that.
1: Somebody once referred to, uh, ancestors in training, uh, what we're doing as, as conscious elders.
0: Yes. Ancestors in training. Wow. I love that one. Last two questions, one related to gifts. So have you found on the other side of the the post doom door or whatever, like on the other side of grief and, you know, depression and all that, what we've all cycled and felt, what gifts have you found on that other side?
1: Yeah. Just a sense of, you know, kind of peace and completion and, uh, You know, I can almost measure it by my need to not talk about it. It's like I've internalized it sufficiently that I don't need to convince anybody. Yes, yes. And, uh, and, and and give my gift more and more. That's why we're doing this, uh, putting an enormous amount of work and taking our our tribe, uh, tribe training out into the world as as an online course. So it's uh, giving my gift.
0: That's great. And since you've mentioned that a couple of times, I don't want to wait to just the end. How does somebody learn more about somebody hearing this or, or reading or, or uh, uh, viewing this conversation? How would they learn more about your tribe work?
1: We believe it is so time for tribe. So our website is timefortribe.com.
0: Yep. That's great. Cool. Well, Bill, last question I want to ask and then we can just go wherever we want, but um, remaining opportunities. So I'm curious, what's your take on what's beyond our control and where we still can make a difference individually or collectively? In yeah. other words, what, what's your sense of no, what's no longer possible, but what still is possible?
1: Making peace with ourselves. And uh, one, of, one of the spiritual teachers was saying that uh, she sees this as, uh, you know, a time where it's happening more and more, faster and faster, the quickening, more and more people are waking up, and the pressure of the situation is actually forcing people to a place where they're actually waking up more and more i like that i like i like that feels right and i'm holding it Mm -hmm. but thanks to you now i don't hold it too
0: Well, no, it's useful. It, it, it's, it's what David Sloan Wilson calls practical truth. Sure. That by holding, holding that as a truth, it inspires your life and, and helps you on a day by day basis. That's practical truth. And we need a yeah. lot more of that in the world, it seems to me. Versus
1: faith, which Carl Sagan says is a belief in the absence of compelling evidence.
0: Yeah, well, uh, yeah. where that line is, who knows? <laughs> I see faith as trust trusting trusting reality for me is what faith in god is is supposed to mean trusting reality
1: messing with a minister
0: here yeah right exactly uh so anything else in terms of of uh, where you think we might still be able to make a difference individually and collectively and what's what's beyond our control
1: no i like everybody from guy mcpherson on forward has said do something get active don't just be passive and uh uh, yes we need to have our our bodies and mind and our communities active and Doing something, doing something that feels right, even though it may seem hopeless at some level. Yeah. Get on, do what you got to do right now. Do what you can do.
0: Yes, exactly. Thank you for listening. For the videos of all 75 of my post-doom conversations, as well as other post-doom resources, visit postdoom.com.